0: they're the best. (laughs) They're the absolute best. What's interesting is that Gabriele and Melissa are doing ministry in Milan. And he said, and you heard him, it's a, a city of well over a million people. And then the Metroplex is that much larger. It's enormous. And having the opportunity to have been in Milan, I actually got to pray and to preach in their church, which was extremely intimidating because for realsies, Gabriele can flat bring the thunder. So I got to spend some time with them, meet their people, have meals with their folks. And here's what we noticed walking around Milan. It is, I would say, hands down, one of, if not the most beautiful city I've ever experienced. Not only that, everybody there is stunningly beautiful. I was hands down the least attractive person, which I'm used to being, but this was like an order of magnitude different. I was the least attractive person by like exponential figures. Sort of humbling, it's also sort of liberating. Like I don't even have to suck in. I just walk around and eat their cheese, and they're all, you know, having, you know, a cigarette and water for lunch, and that was it. I looked totally at peace. Anyway, that's a community in a context that is so fundamentally focused on externals. And so what you see when you scratch the surface hardly at all is that there's an enormous amount of hopelessness because all of their focus, emphasis, and attention is on the externals. And so Gabrielle and Melissa are ministering into what is essentially a hopeless context. But... We're going to continue this morning in our study through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see a distinctly opposite idea from that, that it's not at all about externals. In fact, it leads us to our big idea, which goes thus, life is inside out. Now, I don't mean it's inside out like sometimes my two teenage boys put on their clothes to this day. No, I mean something far more foundational and fundamental, that life is inside out. We're going to read... The book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And I just want you to hear this prayer from Pastor Apostle Paul. Let it sort of wash over you. Then we're going to, as briefly as we can, we're going to unpack this powerful prayer from Paul, and then we'll see how we can apply it. So Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This will conclude the first half of our study through the book of Ephesians. So chapter 3, verse 14. In love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now I want to unpack this powerful pastoral apostolic prayer as efficiently as I can. I want to start back here in verse 14. This is the second pastoral prayer that we're going to get from Paul in the book of Ephesians. The first one was the second half of chapter 1. It was a prayer for enlightenment, that the church would simply understand, appreciate, and embrace what they have already, a prayer for enlightenment. But here we get to the end of chapter 3. It is a prayer for enablement. As Paul sits in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, under house arrest, awaiting false accusation from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, he prays for them, first, that they would have enlightenment, secondly, that they would have... Enablement, And of course, you've heard that there are so many different ways that the book of Ephesians has been outlined. That it is our position in Christ is the first half, and then the second half is our practice on earth. Or we might say it this way, that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about our wealth. Chapters 4 and 5 are about our walk. And then chapter 6 is our war. Or perhaps you want to keep going with the alliteration, because I sure do. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all about our belief Chapters four and five are all about our behavior. Chapter six is about our battle. Shall I continue? I won't. The point being, it's a wonderful piece of literature that bears our study. In fact, seven weeks ago, I sort of charged and challenged all of us that if you've got nothing better to do and you don't, I challenge you to memorize Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I've spoken with some of you, and you decided to trot it out there in front of me. Praise God, there's still more time. You can still work on your memorization of Ephesians 1, three to 14, three times in this prayer that we've already read, Paul says that his prayer is that they increasingly be like Jesus. Now, I don't know if you ever really think about that, That God's plan for your life is that really and truly, in this life, not just one day in this week by and by, but in this life, God's will for your life is that you actually begin to increasingly reflect and resemble the very Son of God himself. Three times he'll pray that you would be more like Jesus, more like the Christ, more like the Son. And so the old adage goes that in both Testaments, how is that image sculpted? The Word of God is the chisel, and the Spirit of God is the hammer, relentlessly taking away all that is not Jesus. And sometimes it hurts. But we're not left without those resources. The people of God are to become increasing like the Son of God. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God make that happen, provided that we participate. And this is Paul's prayer. So he says, Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason. Now, I have to chuckle a little bit because Paul was a pastor and a preacher, and he was also an apostle. But you might remember that chapter 1 begins with the exact same expression. For this reason. But then Paul gets sidetracked with like this massive, marvelous mystery. This, oh, by the way, that let me just tell you, the ministry that I have is this mystery, which is that Jews and Gentiles are now one, and they are one in the Son. And it's the greatest, oh, by the way, ever but he was just about to pray for them and then got sidetracked. That ever happened to you? No, just me and Paul, where you're praying and all of a sudden it's, I will not eat that goat. I will not eat on a boat. How did that even get in there? It's okay. There's grace for that. We all have opportunities to pray some more. For this reason, he now picks back up where he started in verse one, and now he's focused. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We've most of us have been in church at least once or twice, or we've been to a camp or a VBS or a Sunday school or a life group or some such setting, and we understand that really focused prayer oftentimes will involve the bending of knees. That was a novel, unusual practice in Paul's day. Jewish men would stand with their hands raised and their eyes to heaven, beseeching, imploring God. There are different postures. There are times when when Solomon dedicates the temple, he's standing. When Jesus prays in the garden, he's face down. But this is Paul saying, no, I want to demonstrate humility and brokenness and neediness and yieldedness and surrender. Now remember, this is the apostle Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians, probably dictating it out loud while he's chained to a Roman soldier who has sworn loyalty to Caesar. Paul, I think quite literally, stands up, bends his knees, and kneels and prays precisely this in the hearing of this Roman soldier. That's going to be a DVD I want to rent so bad I can hardly stand it. What was that soldier thinking about? He says, I bend my knee. I bow my knees before the Father. And then Paul's going to do a little bit of a play on words. In Greek, pater. I bow my knees before the Father because in Hebraic culture, the Father is a ruler, He's a loving, good, the bestest, most perfectest ruler ever, but he's still a ruler. And so Paul says, to him I yield and I bow. He is the pater, from whom every family, and the word family is patria. So everybody who has any meaning, it's because it comes from a God who is good, who is loving. Despite all of us who may or may not have had a good father figure, Paul says, oh, but there is a God and he is sovereign, but he's also the goodest ever imaginable. And so I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Everything that is created that has a sentient mind, angels, the book of Job calls angels the sons of God. All the Bible calls people, both redeemed and unredeemed, the, the sons of God, the family of God, because they get their whole aesthetic and their ethic from God. Everybody does. He's that big and that good of a God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. This is going to be Paul's primary principle prayer. And it's going to be for a singular thing. God says, Paul says, I want God to do this. Not when he's got spare time. Not when there's nothing else going on. Not when there's not, you know, a pandemic or a snowpocalypse or a thing. or that. No, no, no. Paul says, my prayer is that according to the riches of his glory, which is infinite... We use this expression all the time. If Warren Buffett or Bill Gates gives me $5, that is out of his riches. If they give me $5 million, that is according to their riches. And Paul says, this is how I want God to work in and bless you according to, commensurate with, the riches of his glory. This is how much of the Godhead I want to be brought to bear to accomplish this thing. Because Ephesians and ultimately East Texans, life Is inside out. That he may grant you, it's a grace, it's a gift. You don't earn, accomplish, achieve, or obtain. It is granted by God himself. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Now, not that you get all swole and start doing weight gainers and muscle milks, that's not it. It's interesting, there's virtually zero prayer for the externals in anything that Paul will ever write in 13 epistles, ever. It's always internal, it's always inside that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit, he's the agency, in your inner being, the, the, the soul that is you, fully you, that if we could pull back the veil of this physical and material world, we would be astonished and shocked at the glory that God has made each and every one of us in Christ, that you would be able, that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner Inner being. That's what he's asking for. That you would be strengthened and live inside out because life, Paul knows and is teaching them, is inside out. Verse 17. So that, here's the how come, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is a fantastic little verb. So that he might dwell. There's a couple different words for dwell in scripture. One of them is sort of what you might call uh, when you're a renter you're a tenant, you're leasing. That's not the word that Paul uses. What he says is that Christ may actually take up residence and live there, not as a renter, but as an owner, as the master of the house. If you're renting, you can't renovate. But if you're the owner and the master of that house, you can renovate all day long. Paul says, I'm praying that your inner person, your soul is strengthened so that you will be a hospitable dwelling. And he won't just move in and like take the spare bedroom. No, 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 no. That's bad theology. That's bad Christology. That's insufficient that he would be the master of your house. 1947, an old Presbyterian preacher named Robert uh, Boyd Munger wrote a wonderfully famous little track called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he tells the story. Of Jesus being welcomed into this home, and, and Jesus begins to walk through the the heart, which is going to be Jesus's home, and the man says, "Oh yes, yes, this is this is our dining table." And Jesus says, "Well, let's let's take a look at all that you consume and why you consume it. Are you are you escaping something? Are you are you trying to inoculate? Are you trying to pursue pleasures that are apart from me? We're gonna, you know what." Don't don't be don't be upset about that. We're going to work on this. I'm going to work on this. We're going to we're going to renovate this room. Okay, Jesus, let me show you the, the kitchen and the workshop. This is where all of my giftedness, all of my skill, this is where all of my creativity. This is where it comes to bear and Jesus says, "Well, wow, that's interesting. So why are you doing these things?" You know what? If you'll let me, I'm going to take this room and I'm going to make it amazing. Way greater, way more glorious, way more impactful and influential than you can ever imagine and you're going just, this is amazing. Hey, Jesus, this is, this, is my, this is my bedroom. This is where I rest and I take respite. And Jesus says, oh, I love that. I love it when you rest. That's my plan and purpose for you is that you would take rest. Jesus, you say, this is, this is my study. This is where I really sit and contemplate and I really devotionally. And Jesus goes, oh, you know what? I love this room. That, in fact, in fact, Eric, this is the room I'm going to meet with you every single morning. I can't wait. And then we take a right and we go down the hall, and Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, what's in there? And I go, no, nothing. You can't see in there. No, that's, that's, that's my closet. I keep some things in there from, you know, that, that's fine. Jesus says, that's pretty rank. That's pretty foul. I, I don't think I'm going to enjoy being in your dining room, your kitchen. I don't think I'm going to be, enjoy being in your studies. I can smell that coming out of the closet. It, 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 it's, it's foul. And you go, yeah, that, that's, listen, that's off limits, Jesus. He says, well, then I can't, I can't have fellowship here. Now, he's not saying in his little tract that Jesus departs and a person loses their salvation. It's not what he's saying. That's not what it, Paul means by that Christ would be your dwelling. The problem Paul understands and that Mr. Munger understood is that we have a tendency to go, that's such a mess in there. I can't clean it up. I can't get that good enough for Jesus. Right, which is the stuff of every HGTV show, DIY disasters. You're not supposed to try to fix that mess. You can't. You made it. But if you simply love and trust the one who can, throw open the door. And he goes, ooh, yeah, that's pretty foul. But you know what? It's no match for me. And he's increasingly at home as the master of the house. You know what I think is also in Paul's mind as he's talking about this? It's Genesis 18. We get this wonderful story where there's Abraham and Sarah in their tent, they're Bedouins, and they can see a far, 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 far way off. And Abram sees three figures approaching. As the narrative continues, you figure out that it's actually it's Yahweh, accompanied by two angels. And we know that anytime you see Yahweh bodily manifest, present in the Old Testament, it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus. It's really fascinating what happens. The angels flanking Jesus, Yahweh, approach Abraham's tent and they sit down and they are made to feel at home. And Abraham's like, go, 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 get the, get the cab, bring milk, bring cakes, bring fruits. And he does everything. Would you be at home in my home? Would you be the master of this house? And you know what? God sits down and is at home. But then that little story continues and you find out that Lot, who is also a believer in Yahweh, But he lives in Sodom. And so God dispatches the angels to go to Sodom. But God is not home in that context. It's not saying that Lot wasn't a believer or he wasn't, just that God is not home there. But God was completely at home in Abram's tent, completely. And Abram thought of everything he could do to be hospitable to the presence of God. That's what Paul's saying. My prayer is that you would be so strengthened that that would be your characteristic. That would be your heartbeat. That you want more than anything else to make your heart Christ's home because life is inside out. But he's not done. Oh no, there's more. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. This these two mixed metaphors. You can't do that literarily. Rooted is an organic thing like a tree growing up. We see that in Psalm 1. We see that in Jeremiah 17 like a tree planted by streams of living water and grounded that your foundation would be the fact that God loves you. The thing that your life is built on is the fact that God loves you. Not that he tolerates you. Not that he's sort of less disappointed in you. No, no, no that that is the foundation, the cornerstone on which your whole life is built because life is inside out. you would be rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, and that you would have strength to comprehend. This word comprehend is because we can't figure out a better translation. It means to violently and aggressively lay hold of, to snatch and seize, That you would actually, like, this is the most important treasure in the cosmos, and you grab hold of it. You don't sort of just flirt with it and go, well, you know, that's kind of nice to know in passing. No, Paul says, I am praying that in your inner person you have the strength to snatch and grab this glorious, great news. That you'd have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, not just the ones we pick and choose. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. The way our inner man is strengthened is that we lay hold of this great glorious truth together. Specifically, people who might not look like us, live where we live, like what we like, vote how we vote. That's how our inner man is actually developed. Our inner woman, our inner person, that's how that's actually strengthened to lay hold of the goodness and the glory of God. That That Um, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Now, that just sounds like it's sort of an expanse of boundaries that Paul's laying out there to say, hey, you guys, God's love is really big. And it is. But it's a very particular Old Testament reference that Paul has in mind. It comes from the book of Job, chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. In the book of Job, Job has these three friends that are not particularly helpful Job, some of the oldest literature in, in, in humanity, it's at least 4,000 years old, if not older. And one of Job's friends, great name, his name is Zophar. Don't mess with the Zophar. Zophar comes to Job and says, hey, Job, who do you think you are to answer back to God? Who do you think you are to question? Can you, Job, can you know the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of God? Of course you can't. But Paul says, oh, actually, Actually, Zophar, this side of the coming of Messiah and the indwelling of the Spirit and the surrounding of the people of God, even Gentile Ephesians, Zophar, oh yes, they can know the unknowable, the length, breadth, depth, and height from the grave to around the cosmos all the way up to the very throne room of God. Paul says, I want your soul to search and to seek, and that's going to require strength, and so that's my prayer for you. It's the prayer of every pastor for his people that that would be the case. So that you would know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you see the the oxymoron there? That you would know that which is unknowable. That you would know that which is beyond knowledge. But that you would begin to not just have some familiarity, but some intimate experience with the love of Christ that is beyond all comprehension. I'm praying that you would have strength to comprehend it. In other words, it's infinite and boundless, ultimate and utter. That's my prayer, Paul says. That surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you looked around this room? If you were God, if you looked around the room on the third floor, if you were God, are these the the vessels you would choose to, to fill? Probably the better translation is, just as God is full of glory, know that you and I are not the complete encapsulators of an infinite God. Of course not. But just as the ocean is full of water, it's not missing any moisture in the same way that we would be full as the fullness of God is full. There be no room for anything other because that is going to happen. That is our utter, ultimate eventuality. Until that time, says, my prayer is that you would have strength to lay hold of that and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Something in your heart, soul, and mind should be saying, well, that's actually too much. That's impossible. That can't happen. Precisement. That's exactly right. It is impossible, which is why Paul gives us Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So whatever we can imagine, God can do more. Yeah, but I can imagine that. God says I can do more. Yeah, but I can imagine that, but I can do more. You cannot out imagine him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to, not out of again, according to the power at work within us. To him, that's God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. It's an astonishing truth what Paul says. What we do as a church here and now, as we interact and engage with Gabriele and Melissa in Milan, as we give the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, as we do that because of the worth and the worthiness of Jesus that literally becomes the fodder and the fuel for the praise of God for all eternity. So let me just reiterate, when I hear people say, ah, church, I've heard the stories, it doesn't matter. You're misunderstanding the enormity of the person of God. And I begin to wonder, is his love really the foundation of your heart? And are you living inside out? Or is your experience with God merely one of fear? I certainly don't want to go to hell when I die, therefore I had better. That God's not real. No wonder we don't worship that God. The greatest passage, perhaps ever, we walk through very briefly. I want to apply this as quickly as I can, just four quick implications. What do we do with all this? Since life is inside out this is Paul's prayer for these people in Ephesus, this church how do we bring this home? First, implication or, or walking around application that I want you to have with you. goes like this. Your heart, Christ's home. And I mean, really. See, so much of, uh, of the book of Ephesians is about our identity being in Christ. 27 times Paul will say we are in Christ. The saints at Ephesus in Christ. But this is an amazing passage where Paul says, but he desires to dwell Not to rent, not to pass through, but to take up permanent and eternal residence. He wants to be the master of that house. He says something in some very subtle ways that the people of Ephesus would have understood. In Ephesus was what they called the Artemision, The temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, the temple of Diana called the Artemision. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in the center, the holy of holies of that temple, was this big, giant black meteorite that had been carved into her image. And it sat there, and that was like the most sacred space. Paul says, It's actually you. It's actually you. My prayer is that you would be strengthened so much in your inner person that you would comprehend that that's where the actual God, the only God who actually is and the only God who actually does, he wants to live there. That's you. The little story from Robert Boyd Munger continues on that we seem to forget that Jesus has taken up mastery in our home. And we get busy and we get distracted and we get interested in things less awesome. So the way he tells the story, there you are. You rush down the hall on your way out to your day, whatever that might be, work, play, whatever, and you happen to look over into your study, and, th- and there he is. There he is. There's Jesus, the second member of the Godhead Trinity incarnate. There's Christ sitting there waiting. And you say, oh, oh my goodness, have you, have you been here this whole time? Have you... Have you I haven't been, ca- and he catches you. He says, see, stop right there. You think it's about coming in here and, and investing the time and caring about the study and the quiet time and even the prayer and the devotion. He said, the reason you stop coming is because you have forgotten how much this time matters to me. This is where I want to be. I miss you. You think I'm disappointed? You think I'm here to judge and condemn? That's happened already. The reason you've forgotten to stop in and spend time is because you think it's about you. You've forgotten how much this matters to me. And you and I will never spend the time if we think we should. Never. But Paul says, I pray that you would be strengthened to become the kinds of people who will chew the face off your neighbor to get to spend time with Jesus because of how much it matters to Jesus. Your heart Christ's home. Secondly, every living thing grows. I hear this all too often from Christians. I made that decision. I took that knee. I'm done. I'm gone. Every living thing grows. After all the time that Paul had spent with them, after all the struggle he'd endured to finally get to Rome and be in prison because of them, essentially, because of all that, what he wants for them more than anything else is that they now grow as individuals, in community. Then, just as now, the tendency for everyone, including Christians, is to focus on externals. Those things that can be measured, or even better, measured against others. And I'm not doing so great, but <clears throat> no, there's never any prayer for their externals whatsoever. Not at all. The world celebrates youth, and it detests aging, because the world is powerless to do anything about aging. But Paul knows that that approach of focusing on externals leads to death. Now, I don't know if you've ever fully realized this, but God holds the aging and maturing as beautiful and increasingly precious. I walked by some of you this morning up on the third floor. And I thought, my God, my God, he loves you so much. And then there were some of you that are young and attractive, not so much. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There As we age and as our external person begins to shrivel and begins to stagger and cough, it's almost like that which is impossible happens, that God loves us more. It's amazing. Every living thing grows, and the way that growth occurs is by the strengthening of the inner man to the extent that Christ is completely at home there. One writer said this, nature sees a vacuum and abhors it. But God sees a vacuum and fills it with his son. Now that's good news. Third part, third point. Prayer is the breath of faith. I just want you to hear that. I don't want you to be convicted. I just want you to hear that as truth. Prayer is the breath of faith. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Every preacher knows that there's almost always two simple application points. Read your Bible and pray. Like that's every sermon ever going to have that. So, So yes, but the inner person who is growing because life is inside out is all about prayer. If Yahweh in Genesis 18 had come to Abraham and moved in, it would have been incredibly odd for Abraham to never have a conversation with God. Like, what? Are you still here, sovereign of the cosmos? That's weird. That would have been a strange misunderstanding, misappropriation, misapplication. Prayer is the breath of faith. In the same way, Christ actually wants to be at home in our hearts. And the very fact that we do engage him in prayer demonstrates our faith. And it actually works to accomplish things by God's power that we can't even imagine. Did you know you can outpray your imagination? Think on that for a second. You and I can out pray our imagination because whatever we're praying, we stumble and we stutter and we stammer. But the spirit of God, Romans says, is actually interceding and carrying our true inner man to God on our behalf. Whatever we think we can imagine, God goes, oh, I can do more. Oh, I I can do more. What if your prayer exceeded your imagination? Fourth point. Don't settle. I can just imagine Paul, he's sitting in prison in Rome going, "Don't settle. I spent two years in prison in Caesarea Philippi. I was shipwrecked, snake-bit in Malta, beaten with rods, flogged, stoned. I've been in prison in Rome. Don't settle for simply not going to hell one day when you die. Oh, no, no. My prayer is that you would be strengthened in your inner person to know this Jesus. Because life is inside out. Take by faith that what he wants is more than you can imagine. If the max we can handle is about 75 minutes of minor inconvenience on a Sunday when, you know, there's nothing else going on, this pastor and the apostle praise that you would not settle. Most of us, whether we know it or not, are experiential theologians. We base our knowledge of God on that which we have experienced in the past, and perhaps it hasn't been very amazing. And so we just assume that there's nothing else that he's going to do in our lives. But what if, what if there was something more? What if we prayed for it? What if we actually experienced abundance in our individual lives, in our families? What if, husbands, you began to pray so wildly for the strengthening of your spouse's inner being? What if, spouses, wives, you began to pray unabashedly, you couldn't wait to meet with Jesus to throw your spouse at his feet? What if? I don't know, but I know that we can outpray even our imaginations. What if we, what if you, what if I, what if us as a campus outprayed our imaginations and began to live like life is inside out? It's wrong to think that you are unable because He is able in you. Is it saying that you're a really big deal? No, of course, but He absolutely is. And so this morning, the end of this doctrinal theological section in the book of Ephesians, I'm just going to invite you, if you don't know him, I'm going to invite you to believe. Not to be able to explain it or articulate it or win Bible jeopardy. I'm not saying that. Do you believe that he is who he says he was, that he did what he said he would do, and that he wants to dwell with you? I'm going to invite you to believe. Perhaps for some of you that means an intellectual assent, Perhaps for somebody that means waving the white flag, saying, you know, you know what, you know what? I'm not even gonna just tour guide you through the rooms of my heart. I'm just gonna sign over the deed. It's you, it's yours, it's just yours. I'm gonna invite you to believe. For the rest of you who do know him, who are believers, I'm gonna implore you here at the end of February, can you believe that two months of the year are gone? Tomorrow's March, don't settle. Dream dreams that only your God can complete. No more being that Christian who merely drops nickels in somebody else's fantasy. Dream big dreams. And so my challenge, as, as practical as I can make it, pray every single morning this week about what God would have you participate in that would require his power. Not just you writing your giftedness, but every morning starting in March, God, what would you have me engage in that requires your power, your presence, your provision? I can just about guarantee he's going to surprise you. Don't be so quick to reject it. Let's pray together. And may this be a model for how we pray as individuals, as families, as a campus, as a community. God, our Father, I believe. Please help my unbelief that you want for this church to be and do more than we can ever imagine. We believe that we are the people of this church, that we are Bethel, the house of God in this age. We believe that you are able to do and that you want to do through us. So please, God, give us discernment and sensitivity and eagerness to see what it is that you want and then do it in and through us. Unless, of course, God, you have an even better idea. Thank you, Father, that life is inside out and it just keeps getting better. What a scandal of grace. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.